Like many people involved in dance music, Gerd Janssen's career is a series of happy accidents. He started DJing after being asked by a friend. But before he made his name in the DJ booth, Janssen was a journalist, regularly contributing to German dance music magazine Groove, as well as hosting numerous events at the Red Bull Music Academy. He says it's only the last 15 years that he's been able to say that he works full-time on music and still seems slightly amused by the fact that this has somehow become his job. One of the most in-demand DJs in Europe, we caught up with him prior to a show at London's Night Tales and talked about his career, the art of DJing and the roots of German house music. What are you most proud of in your career? I mean, I, I think I have a general problem with uh, pride of any kind <laughs> when it comes to myself. So, um, yeah, I mean, but okay, because I have this working uh, class background, I never get tired of mentioning it. Uh, I think I'm most proud of that I actually managed to make a living with what I thought is just my pop culture hobby. You know, So, yeah, I think. And for any other achievements or non-achievements i think it's the the other people have to decide what's worth a mention and what's uh, what's not so yeah but yeah i think to to myself it's it's pretty astonishing that i was able to start making a living with it and i'm still making a living with music you know uh, how how long have you been making a living uh being involved in music now um, i i think <laughs> Yeah, I'm still trying to um, to uh, uh, define the moment where I where I knew I could fill the fridge. <laughs> um, um, I, you know, time is like a weird thing. Sometimes it seems like stuff happened yesterday, and then it was like ten years ago. So I would say maybe now it's almost fifteen years. I would say I'm, I'm I made a living. Um, with and through music in, in various forms you know I, I started to get paid to work as a music journalist before I started to get paid to play records or music yeah. you're unusual as we both are of being kind of journalists who who DJ there's not there's not many of us around um, do, do you think that one uh, helps the other um, yes, Bill, you are my big role model in that, <laughs> <laughs> in that kind of sense. Sense, I, I would say from the the time and an era we kind of. I mean, you're a little bit older than than I am, but I think we come from the same uh, kind of of time and space where you had to really put work into learning about the music that we liked. You know, you, I mean, that's why there was this big music journalism thing going on because people wanted to know and it, it was like a news bulletin and at the same time it was like in-depth interviews with artists so i mean nowadays through social media and stuff i think people like us are not really needed anymore to to communicate between the the, the topic the artist and uh, the actual um uh, address is it at address c in english uh, the 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 fan you know so and 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 to me it was i i i never wanted to be a dj so I, even when I, I started to go out early with 13 or 
something like that. But it was never, I never had this epiphany being in a nightclub, looking at the DJ booths like, oh yes, I want to do this. I want to be in control of people. It, it was, I was just a fan of the music and I liked dancing. So to me, it was like, I want to, I want to know more about it and where it comes from. And I think that that was the, the you become a, I mean, music journalist is maybe even the wrong term. You become a researcher. I, I suppose uh, the area you're talking about is kind of pre-internet, really, because um, the internet has changed everything because you have so many facts at your fingertips now, whereas when I started and when you started, you, research involved maybe going to a library or going to a, a newspaper library or, or tracking people down and talking to them. Um, and, and now there's just so much so much information on the internet you don't have to do that so much yeah and in, I mean in my case it was like I basically tried to I remember like during the first school trips to London like I, I bought like all the magazines like uh, Mix Mag, DJ, uh, Jockey Slot um, all, all that to me that was like oh wow you know like like wells of uh, knowledge and and information and but I have to be fair and give um, in the internet <laughs> the credit um, that's due because to 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 me it was like at, at one point it was like jockey slot on amphetamines when um, a, a website like Deep House page appeared and then also yours uh, DJ history it, it was like oh finally you you could communicate with other freaks <laughs> and and it was also possible to actually listen to I mean we only dreamt of. Ron Hardy, Tony Humphreys, Frankie Knuckles tapes in, in Germany. I used to go to Camden Market to buy all these bootleg tapes, you know, Todd Terry Volume 3 <laughs> that were from around the parties uh, that happened in the UK and then got, yeah, got turned into money by, <laughs> by greedy guys at Camden Market. And, 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 and um, yeah, so for me it was like, yeah. Uh, all, all of that on amphetamines. I was going crazy. No, absolutely. So you said that you didn't want to be a DJ. What, when, when did you decide that you, you would DJ? Like, what, what happened? I, I think it was kind of decided for me, as, as weird as it sounds, because I, I obviously also pre-internet started to collect records because I thought a lot of these um, uh, tunes and, and, and records, they will disappear because... They were made for a purpose, dancing in nightclubs for a certain moment. And um, as you know, some stuff never appeared on, on CD even or only on compilations and then it was mixed or you had to get a mixtape. So the stuff I really liked, I wanted to, 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 to treasure and keep. And so I frequented record shops locally and internationally in an unhealthy amount or as <laughs> how much I could afford. And then I just got asked at one point by um, uh, a guy I'm still uh, uh, friends with and uh, I DJ with him uh, still to this day is Thomas Hamann. Uh, I also made a mix CD with him for Robert Johnson and he was in Darmstadt in Germany, a, a, a DJ we always looked up to and because I think he started somewhat early in 83 um, and he had a record shop and uh, it was one of the record shops my friends and me visited frequently and he liked what we bought so there was a local club called Cafe Kesselhaus and we were also always hanging out there and then at one point he was like well, don't you want to play and I'm like yeah I don't really know how to do it and uh, yeah but you can 
start, <laughs> you know, the, the night early, so you don't really have to mix or do anything. And and then I think I thought, oh, that went not too bad, and it would pay for getting even more records. So yeah, it's s- slowly I got got into it, and I was also then interested in learning the art of mixing, just to you know to get behind the the alchemy of it all. So yeah, and then one gig became two and a circle of friends was DJing so I was so by, by the time you started DJing you, you didn't even have a set of decks at home presumably or, or, or two sets of decks and a mixer it, it went simultaneously it was like in 90 I left school in 96 and in, in Germany you had to I mean friends had like home setups with uh, techniques and little mixers so I fooled around with it at around that time but then i had to work um at that time you after school as a male person you you had to join the army in 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 germany or do a so-called civil service uh, substitute service for it and i became an ambulance driver and after doing that for one year they you get you got paid quite an okay um a loan for it and then at the end you got a big like farewell payment and with that farewell payment my brother at the time he's a year younger he was interested in hip-hop and then we decided ah let's just buy a setup for fun together and to really practice how to do it so without wanting to practice to actually get access to clubs and parties as a dj i yeah i wanted to to learn the ropes of it that way so but but you were already djing by then presumably yes but but in this kind of like play a bar gig or um, yeah. the first two hours or, or stuff like that, you know. So so how did your relationship with Robert Johnson start? Because that was sort of your where your reputation was made. I yes, suppose, wasn't but that it? that came straight or or directly from the the person uh, I mentioned earlier, Thomas Hamann, because he was in Darmstadt, such a, and also sometimes in Frankfurt. It, Frank, Darmstadt is a student town close to Frankfurt. I mean, maybe like. Uh, Brighton, London, in this kind of distance thing, and um, there w- there was a Monday night there called the club was called Kessel House, and the Monday night was called K House. So they had that was basically their biggest night on a Monday because all the students, no one had to get a degree, so they, <laughs> they were all partying all the time. And he also got known with with like the Playhouse people from Frankfurt through through his work as a DJ there and when Atta who's like one of the the founding fathers of Playhouse Records and and the, yeah the the head behind Robert Johnson um when he started the club he asked Thomas to to play there and um and Thomas decided to bring me and another friend Sven Helvig um along and so we played the first time there with him and it went pretty well and then we got our quote unquote our night there you know and yeah i just kept kept doing it um what what was the sound of the of the music then what kind of music was being played i mean at um at, at like the label playhouse they they had this kind of uh, symbiotic relationship with uh, what luke solomon and uh, Derek carter were doing at classic you know, so uh, at at that time when they opened Robert Johnson, it was this kind of very UK influenced uh, futuristic form of house music. Mm, what we were doing was, 
I think, m still more rooted in American house music, U.S. American house music, or the stuff that that looked to disco and boogie as an influence. And of course, I was like a big nerd of so-called deep house stuff. So we 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 tried to keep keep that uh, fire burning. And then shortly, a few years later, the big thing called Electro Clash happened and that was actually really big at Robert Johnson and Atta as a, as a DJ was reminded of his roots in the early 80s and mid 80s and, and went like really behind that and I think for me, I can only speak speak for myself, I got more often, I mean if you, if you saw House in the mid and late 90s as an opposition to the Teutonic techno brum 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 stuff at that point for me it was like yeah i don't know i, I electro clash to at the time I, i mean now i play more of it than back then because to me it was like this fashion hipster thing that was not really um um f have that didn't really have anything to do with musical values and it was just a fad that would go away of course i mean it's a bit short-sighted to say that because someone like trevor jackson who got lumped into that scene obviously was doing something completely different but yeah i i, I think i was still trying to look for the essence of house music at that time you're listening you're to listening the dj, to the DJ history, history, podcast history podcast with bill brewster bill brewster, bill brewster. Um, how, how big was house in Germany? Because most of the kind of prevailing stories about Germany from that sort of period are largely about techno, often about Berlin. And obviously, I know I know from discussions we've had in the past that you're a bit of a student of clubs like the Front in Hamburg, for example. I'm just wondering how how big was house music? I mean. Oh, oh. A record like Real to Real, I like to move. It was big everywhere in Germany, you know. But if you just look at an at an underground club scene, you you had places like Front, and in every bigger city, you had maybe some similar club. No, of course, not as cool as Front or as much uh, rooted in the in the gay scene or whatever. But you you had like people trying to make house clubs happen everywhere, all over Germany, but. If you compare it to the influence that actual techno or rave music or the stuff that turned into Love Parade and so on and so forth had, it was like really, really tiny. It was actually a hipster thing to like, <laughs> you know, a bit like collecting Northern Soul or something like that. It was like, you, it felt more sophisticated, you know. Right, okay. Um, um, what do you think the black influence of, of um, dance music is in Germany? Because I'd always kind of assumed that um, it was quite a, a white culture, but the more I, I look back at um, uh, German music in the 60s, 70s, 80s, there are actually a lot of like US servicemen, for example, based in Germany and working in studios in Munich and places like that. So there actually was definitely a kind of a, a black community who were contributing to music in that period. Yeah, I think you can't give those people credit enough because they, they planted the seed, you know. And um, especially in Frankfurt, there, was, there, was, there were big army bases and, and a club like Dorian Gray, um, where Michael Münzing used to DJ and who founded Snap and all of that and it's it's yeah it's unthinkable without the the, the influence of GIs. 
Yeah. And I, I think also for for a band like Kraftwerk, they they were as much influenced by soul records uh, and and uh, Afro American bands than they were with like technical possibilities. So yeah, yeah I think yeah. you you can't overestimate it. I mean, what it developed into, of course, and what you what you saw later was then like German kids raving, you know, but. It, and and of course the society at that time it's it's not you you had your immigrants from Italy and Turkey and all of that and and it slowly the society slowly changed but um, of course it it w it was never as multicultural as a, as a place like London or New York for that matter you know mm. so where, where where was where did you first hear dance music on the radio. And and on TV, I I remember as a kid, like really a kid, I must have been eleven or or something like that. I saw um, on German TV, um, like on this kind of music TVs uh, show. I remember we we were visiting relatives in Bavaria, and we flicked through the TV, and I I st I still like. It's almost as um, as much of a memory to me as seeing Kate Bush cloud busting, um, the New Order video to Confusion, and I think Duran Duran Wild Boys as a as a little kid for the first time. Uh, I remember seeing this um, documentary or little documentary about Acid House happening, and it, you saw Boris Lugos and Klaus Stockhausen giving an, an interview, and I thought, "What are these freaks?" And I was kind of attracted to it because I thought, "Hey, this looks like fun." And then a little bit later on, on a Boy Scout trip, um, the, our group leader, who was a few years older, obviously, and had a driver's license and frequented uh, the Omen in Frankfurt, which was Sven Feth's club at the time. And he, and he had one of his, his radio mixes. They were called Club Night at a, at a local stage, station called HR3. And it had, um, I, I always um, keep quoting that a lot, but it made had such a huge impact on me. It was a homeboy, a hippie, and a funky dread, total confusion on that tape. And I thought, oh, this, this stuff is crazy. I mean, I was always interested in music and all kinds of different music. and But something with dance music or techno or whatever you want to call it at the time, that, that struck a chord with me. And I, I, was, I was completely enamored with it. And I, all I wanted to do was, yeah... Going go to a party like that and, and experience it firsthand. Um, yeah, I know you, you started going out as a teenager. Where, where did you first start going out? It it was a little party in between Darmstadt and and my hometown. Um, and I always had all the friends, so they were kind of taking me along and, and dragging me along. And and that was the it was just a one off party in uh, actually um, uh, the upstairs room of a swimming pool, kind of indoor swimming pool. Um, and it had even had a live act back then and uh, like DJs playing. And uh, so that was my first uh, entrance to the scene. And then you had like even in little towns, you had clubs where it started to happen, you know. So, uh, yeah, and, and they, they brought me along and it was, yeah, I kind of lapped it all up, but um, was also at the same time trying to find a way through it and noticed, ah, I like certain DJs more than others. And uh, at the beginning, it was a lot of this rave, techno, I don't know, cheapo sounds. And then, I, yeah, you, house started to creep in and I was like, oh, this is more interesting to me or what is this kind of music? And yeah. And 
I I think I yeah I always had uh, uh, a real passion for black music and the influence of black music sorry Detroit techno <laughs> comes through more in in house obviously you know because it's it's it uses more of the classical tropes of it but I have to say I, I uh, like those early transmet records they also were like uh, uh, a huge influence when I discovered them and yeah, be- beautiful and romantic yeah yeah, yeah absolutely um well, has there ever been a DJ that you've been to see who's kind of changed the way that you thought about what a DJ does or uh, how DJs work? Uh, I have to I have to give credit to uh, Theo Parrish for that in a, in a, in a way. Um, like the the other person I quoted, Thomas Hamann, he he was very influential in in the way he mixed and how he played music and how he built everything. But this kind of um, I, I remember the first time I saw Theo Parrish playing was like uh, in 97 and I already was familiar with the records and um, wasn't sure um, if he's actually can hold up to that as a DJ because at the time like uh, um, in, in, in Germany it was a bit like that if you had a re- release on relief records or in casual they tried to get you a tour so a lot of People who were actually good producers but never played a party in their life <laughs> came on these European tours, you know, and then you you could tell ah he they haven't been doing this a lot, <laughs> no offense, but and then so we kind of were a little bit my friends and me were like ah oh, let's see if he can play and then we were like totally um, blown away by it because he in a way in hindsight I checked that what he was doing was a continuation of the way someone like Ron Hardy played, you know, all kinds of music, but you, the way you stitch it together, uh, you make it house. You know, I remember that night he started with uh, George Benson, The World is a Ghetto, and to us at the time, even even I knew, I knew the record, but I would have never expected it to be played in a house club, but he made it just work, and that, that uh, memory, yeah, stuck, stuck, and I, also the way Americans used the pitch control to to write quote unquote write disco records and mix them with more steady house beats I kind of um, took that in and and really tried to practice that later to so I presume that you're talking about playing with vinyl because I guess that yes. guess those days have kind of changed now and do you, have you abandoned vinyl for for the dark side or yes I'm all <laughs> completely <laughs> completely I'm it to stay in Star Wars terms, I'm joined to Dark Side. I'm a Sith now, yeah, not a not a Jedi. Um, but um, I still collect records. Like um, um, I think by now I have thirty thousand of it stored in a separate uh, room, and I still have a you know a love for the actual medium. But as a as a working tool and for what I do now, it would be just a pain. And I, 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 I also embrace technology. So I, like we, when we started the interview, you know, the way we do it now, it would have been unsink- unsinkable fifteen or twenty years ago. Yeah, in a tape recorder. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the kind of strange things about this this uh, argument about which is the best format is is strange, given the fact that dance music music has always been driven by technology um, and 
that's what I found exciting about it actually was that it was futuristic and a, a lot of my contemporaries were also uh, not just into electronic music but they were like big fans of Star Wars and close yes. accounts of the third kind and yeah um, and, and and the music seemed to fit with with those kind of movies as well yeah you know well, when you listen to like John Carpenter movies for example yes yeah definitely and um I like all of that stuff as well. I mean, I'm kind of, I was born in 77, so I'm a kid of the 80s. Um, but it's also, I remember one of the claims of Hardhouse Records, the label Sven Fate used to, used to do was science fiction house music. And at the time I thought, this has nothing to do with house music at all. What are they talking about? But there, there was in that whole DJ or club, culture at the time there was this whole thing of what's the next record what's the next genre or subgenre and if you look at someone like Andrew Weatherhall I think he embodied that as well because he he never really I mean uh, except for the uh, rockabilly reggae set here and there as a as a party DJ he, he never really looked back too much it was always about finding fresh new stuff and sounds and think at the core that is that is techno you know too but but of course now there's such a vast and big history of it that like with soul music you also have like the traditionalists and then mm. the people who who think forward and then the people who don't care and just want to make a buck or have fun <laughs> I'm, and i think that's what actually makes it so attractive still that it became from a from a niche phenomenon, whatever kind of subgenre of it you picked for yourself or what you thought it is, it became like this, this, like almost like pop music itself, you know, this big part of pop culture. And of course, then it's like when the pie gets so big, you have lots of different people trying to get a slice of it and lots of different flavors. What What do you think makes a good DJ? Mm, there, there. There are many answers to that question. I I enjoy DJs just for their pure technical skill and I hated the music they played. And I loved DJs for the music they played and thought, oh, they could do with a few hours of, <laughs> of practicing. So I, at the end, I think it a great DJ is someone who can uh, capture the moment or, or you seize the moment, if that's the right English expression, who... Um, who can make a dance floor work with whatever tool or technique or method they choose to do so. I would have, years ago, my my answer would have been like what we talked about earlier. You have to do your research, you have to uh, learn the roots, you need to uh, pay respect to the elders, all of that. And then sometimes I think it can be very refreshing for younger people to come in and don't give a damn about any of that and do something completely completely different at the moment you have this whole streak of people who play like euro dance or really bad trance stuff that i consider bad because i was there when it was made at the time you know and you wouldn't have you wouldn't have touched it with a what is it a barge pole a barge pole yeah <laughs> never and to them they to them it kind of works with the zeitgeist you know it speaks to them the way they dress the way they want to be it more more energy whatever so that of course i can be like the, the deep house dad being like no 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 <laughs> and um, and i have to i have to admit 
like decontextualized, taken out of the context from back then and being played now. I mean, I I I play some of that stuff, but I slow it <laughs> slow it down a lot because even as a kid back then, if it wasn't drum and bass or jungle or breakbeat and it was super fast, I never knew how to move to it. You know, S straight kick drums that go over hundred thirty six, whatever. It's not not funky to dance to. Yeah, I've got I've got to say I'm slightly kind of perplexed by this 140 BPM kind of thing that's going on. I was at Love International and there were yes. a lot of DJs playing at that tempo and I I just yeah, I I don't get it at all, but I guess they're young and that's what they're kind of into. Yeah. But I had I had my my daughter with me and yeah. she's nearly 18 and and she was kind of a bit dumbfounded by it as well. Mm. So it's not just me being old. Yeah, but she's heavily influenced by her father, you know. <laughs> <laughs> She'd probably deny that. Yeah, but I think, you know, your parents are always like a big influence. Yeah, that, that was actually earlier. Another club in, in Mannheim had a big influence on me. It was called Milk um, with an exclamation mark behind it. And they kind of fell in love with what was happening in, in the UK at the time w with, uh, at clubs like Rage, you know? So they were playing house music, but they were playing it faster and then they incorporated the first whatever proto-jungle breakbeat records and um, it was very different to what was going on in Berlin or in Frankfurt at the time. So they really created their own, I don't know, diaspora almost of, of that type of stuff and also the way they dr they dressed was was completely different to how ravers dressed in frankfurt for instance they were wearing like shell toe adidas um, adidas sweatpants uh, lots of stussy and fresh jive and it, it looked a bit more like b-boyish b-girlish uh, hip-hop influenced you know so what what do you think to to the ten thousand hour theory when it comes to kind of creativity and that, I don't know if you've heard about this. Malcolm Gladwell talks about it in one of his books. Yeah, I don't know if it really needs to be that much, or in some cases even more hours than that. But and it 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 would interfere with my comment about uh, young refreshing stuff. Uh, but I have to say, also from my own experience, I still feel like I kind of learn with every party that I play and the way of how to make people move with music that aren't all on the same page. I think that is something you basically learn by doing it, not in your bedroom or at the radio show or uh, at uh, a turntablist um, uh, tournament, but in front of people actually doing it. So I think you need lots of experience and hours at nightclubs and parties to to learn that part of it. Yeah, uh, uh, the um, yeah, it's funny. I, I find the um, all of the terrible gigs that I do. Not that I do loads of them these days, but um, good for you. you. <laughs> <but> <laughs> But you just learn so much more from a bad gig than a good gig. When everything goes the way you want it to go, it's great. Yeah. It doesn't really teach you anything. Yeah, that's right. Um, but the bad ones are the ones that you really l have a steep learning curve for. I, I also think like when I, um, when I came to the point early on where I was like, okay, I'm DJing at parties now, and I was just convinced that everyone would love those two bags of records I bring with me because I love the records in there. It never occurred to me that you can end up in a place where 
no one wants to hear Larry Hurd record, you know. And and I I think I also learned more from like weird bar gigs or party gigs where you saw okay, this, this these are random people. They're not into deep house or house at all. They they just are here for a party, and you need to get them going. And then yeah, and, and I mean that is definitely easier these days with a. Uh, pouch of usb sticks because back then you had still even if you brought as many records as i used to bring you, you still were limited to a certain degree and nowadays you can almost do anything you like well, what's what's your favorite place to play is there a specific club or country that you enjoy playing in um i play a lot in the uk so i'm in uh, uh i have to be uh, very thankful for being such a uh, like the DJ over here, so I also like it anytime I'm in, in in London, you know. And I think the the UK has one of the greatest histories of dance music, and it's also deeply ingrained in in culture here now. You know, I mean, you spoke about your daughter. You, you know, it's like almost like three, four generations of party people now, and and you can really feel that when you when you play here, almost anywhere in the country, but. Um, like my, I don't know, my safe space, <laughs> or or my uh, seventh heaven um, is is still uh, Panorama Bar in Berlin uh, and and Robert Johnson in Offenbach because those are the places I played the most by now and they continue to remind me of why I once started to like this. You know, so I just played the last slot at Panorama Bar on on last Sunday and from midnight till 7.15 in the morning. And they used to be open longer, but since the pandemic, they have like a set curfew now of eight in the morning usually or nine. And I think for a DJ, that's still one of the best. I'm still not at, at terms with the sound system there upstairs, but um, I think the, the energy in that room and the people and it all comes together in a weird way. So there are, there are for me, it's... Uh, and and also to be. playing long sets is, yeah. is just gives you, um, I think you can experiment more and not worry too much about it. Um, a two-hour set tends to be kind of your current greatest hits, for want of a better yes. description. But no, that's, that's, a, that's a very accurate description also of what I have to do almost every weekend. You have these string of hits and you you make a cocktail with it. And if you only have two hours, of course, you never stray too far from the basic recipe of it. And if you play longer, you either play tend to play stuff you haven't played in a long time or you for yourself you play things you've never played before and you you try new connections. So yes, that's um that's usually more rewarding also. But I play so much if I would <laughs> if I would do what I did last Sunday every time then I wouldn't be sitting here anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Um, are, are there any, are there any particular gigs that stand out in your life that you've done over your career that has been particularly incredible or amazing? I don't know. I te I tend to think they are still ahead of me, <laughs> but of course it's it's like certain gigs at Robert Johnson or Panorama Bar or the, the 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 stint I had at Plastic People in London or the first time I was playing Precious Hall in Japan and, and all these things you fantasized about, you know. Um, and then often it's also like 
complete random places you would have never uh, expected. Like um, this year, for instance, I played a festival in Slovenia called Boutique. And that felt like if you would have set Panorama Bar next to a river in a, in a forest. On And I, I played a party in uh, uh, Lithuania. Um, that was also like a little a little festival. And um, those two are amongst the best things I've, I think I've ever done. And I definitely did this year, yeah. So Or like Love International is always a blast. Like, I, I think... Sometimes I, I ask myself if I'm jaded now, you know, with all this traveling. And, and But if I'm really honest I to myself, I try to be, no, I'm independent of this now. I don't need this in my life anymore. I could stop tomorrow. And a big part of me believes in that. But the, <laughs> the truth is probably I'm a, what do, you, what, what do Americans call this? Uh, a lifer, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, it's too late to get out now. <laughs> It, and there's and also if i'm honest there is nothing i would rather do yeah it's it, there's definitely an addictive element to it yeah. especially you know when you have particularly good gigs they kind of they they live in your memory for such a long time yeah i i don't have any reason to complain maybe uh, a lack of sleep and yeah and I, I still feel like a kid doing it you know like i i think i don't feel much different than Back in ninety seven, ninety eight, ninety nine, when it started for me, like I, st I still, I'm still intimidated by the the greats of this scene. So I feel like the the warm up kid still. Uh, has the DJ's job changed uh, much over the past thirty years? Do you think? Oh, I think it, it. The job itself is still the same. You have to make people dance, but the way you achieve that, or some people achieve that, I think. Uh, it's 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 almost like a seismic shift because um when i started doing it i thought okay i can do this because and i also said this in a lot of interviews because to me you were on the same level as a barkeeper you were picking the music they were picking and serving the drinks and you had of course always a bunch of people like sven fed carl cox whatever who were like bigger than the rest somehow or all the American royal DJ class um, but I think back then it wasn't really seen as this is a career option you do this for your record collection or for fun or because you want to do it or you get a kick out of it but not because you thought this will be your livelihood at one day and I think now it definitely is on the same level as a uh, doing sports or become a pop singer or yeah or any kind of other other thing and uh, with social media i think it's also the looks of a dj whatever you decide these looks should be became more important than they've ever been before you know what, what's your relationship with social media do you, do you use it much or i think i use it as a voyeur because i <laughs> yeah I like watching people, <laughs> so I, I of course use it to watch what the others are up to, but uh, I have zero posts on Instagram. Like I can't get myself to do it. Like there were a few, there were a few instances where I thought, okay, it would be nice to let people know about this, or should I do this now? But like I, and I don't want to judge people who do it. You know, I, I see some are very uh, uh, complete naturals with it, and others are a bit. Uh, stiff and trying to 
to live up to the medium, you know. But uh, yeah, I, I'm just not good at it. So I decided to stay a social media mystery. But I reply to messages <laughs> if they appear there. So not to all of them, but I try. You're listening, You're to, listening the to the DJ History, History, Podcast. History Podcast. Yeah, can you tell me a little bit about your experiences with uh, Robert Johnson? Um, tell me a little bit about the club and what it looked like and what the early parties were like. I, I always say that if you could put if you could put Panorama Bar and Robert Johnson into one place, you would have the best club in the world, for sure. But what, what makes Robert Johnson great? It's a bit like a loft without columns to, to visualize the place. Um, it, back when they opened it, was everything was completely white, which was weird for a club. It has a wooden floor and a sound system, a bar and a balcony, and not much else. So, And what was the capacity? The capacity, you would have said maybe... 400 people by most, but it, the, the way the room is, you can have a great party with 150 or 200, and you can cram in as much as a thousand with the balcony that goes around the room. So it's a very um, flexible room, which makes it also great for music because you can do the, the mini rave party there, but you can also do a connoisseur nerd chin strokers night, and, it, and both things work. And and it, it's in Offenbach. In Offenbach, right. which is like the, the I mean, I, I wouldn't compare Frankfurt and Offenbach to Manhattan and New Jersey, but it, it, it's the same system, you know. It's basically in terms of the proximity. Yeah, right. and it's a, it's the same city. Just I mean, people from Frankfurt and Offenbach would probably kill me now to, if I say this, but it's just separated by <laughs> by bridges sometimes or like. Uh, uh, um, City signs, right? And um, what was there much tradition in Offenbach for clubs prior to the Robert Johnson? I would say it is housed in a club called MTW, but that was more like a classic discotheque type of of place where you had like, this is the one uh, one Deutsche Marke drink night. This is like Depeche Mode only, you know, like places like this who, who student night. And uh, Robert Johnson is is just like an unused space upstairs, but um, from and you had like little places like Rotary where Theo Parish also used to play once, which was like a little bar place. But Robert Johnson, I would say, was the first time you had like a, a, a musically minded place in in Offenbach. Usually everything was happening in Frankfurt in the inner city or at the airport at Dorian Gray. Omen was pretty much in the in the core of the city which is also due to to uh, landlords and rent prices it's unthinkable these days that you could do a, a, a place in the inner city in frankfurt that isn't made to sell expensive cocktails you know? right did, did you ever go to dorian gray or was that a little bit before your time no it was uh, um, i was there um two times for sure I was also two times only in uh, at the Omen which uh, I hope Saint Fate never hears this but I I wasn't really uh, a fan of the club but I think it it was more it had a great sound system it, it it's one of the incubators of techno but to me like I said I, I be became this nerdy house kid you know and I wanted to get closer to the roots of it all and sometimes as you know the, the grass is greener on the other side, so I fantasized more about 
what was happening in New York or in London at the time than what was going on uh, right in front of me at the doorstep. So I tried to visit visit and frequent the places that catered to what was going on in my head. So there was another club in Frankfurt called Excess, um, and I frequented that more often than um, than the Omen. Every Friday, I think I was there. Or like a house club called Wild Pitch Club that was on a Thursday. So you could go out every night. And Dorian Gray, I went, I went twice for like big parties at, at Eastern. They were called Euphoria. And I went because they basically booked everyone from the UK who wasn't playing <laughs> in the UK that night. It was like a big jungle. It, the name gives it away. Yeah, what, what were the big... Uh, Fantasy FM and these things. In Fantasia. Fantasia, sorry. Yeah, I yeah. mix it up with Fantasy FM. And then there were like two, three other parties that had similar names happening here. And I think Euphoria was the version to do that in Germany. Right. But I remember they also had, like, Dorian Gray was quite a big club with like three rooms at least. And they had uh, in the in the big room that had like a Richard Long system. They had like all the jungle people play, and the house people played in a in a little side room, and then there was a techno thing happening as well, and you could wander between all of them. Yeah. And the the only Richard Long sound system in Europe, in fact, I don't think he ever, uh, I don't think he installed any others in in uh, Europe. Not that I know of. Yes, it it was it was uh, the only one, and it was because the guys who founded um, Robert Johnson were two gentlemen. Uh, and their last names were Schüler and Presinger, and they kind of founded this discotheque dynasty in Frankfurt. So they opened a lot of places, and I think Dorian Gray was one of the first ones they did on a big scale, where they tried to. I think their idea was to have something like a Studio Fifty Four in 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 Germany, it's like for the rich and the famous and the cool people. They also had quite of a. Uh, strict door policy in the early years. You had to wear a suit, no sneakers, you know, everything that was like basically anti-clubbing or techno nowadays, you had to dress up to, to go there. Yeah. And, and, and it was in the, was it literally in the airport? Yes, or was it literally in the airport, where it was sometimes, um, I still go when go by there, <laughs> and it's like an organic supermarket now, where, where it was. And it w it was based between the garages like the parking slots and like the first entrances into the um, into the airport so it, w it was basically a place that the airport didn't know what to do with it that's why um, if the my memory serves me correct and the story is true they didn't have to pay rent for it for the first 10 or whatever 15 years or so you, you said that you you were when you were going to the Omen, you were kind of imagining going to London or New York. What what were the first parties that you went to in London and New York? Um, in London was earlier in ninety five, and I couldn't get. It was a school trip, and I couldn't get any one of my classmates to pay the entrance fee at Ministry of Sound because to them it was like we would pay this for Deepesh Mode not to see who is it. Todd Terry, <laughs> and I, I was I wanted to see Todd Terry there, but then I didn't dare. I think I, I think we had a good chance of not being let in because we were underage at the time, and I think Ministry of Sound always took pride in being like twenty one and over, and we were maybe seventeen. But I was I w my mind was set to oh yeah I need to try this, but then I was also a bit too too shy to go. So <coughs> the first club 
actually was on a Monday and it happened to be heaven. And they had this uh, rage party there, which was back in 95 already a kind of revivalist party because I don't know, I think they stopped it stopped it way before that yeah but we managed to get tickets so <laughs> we were the only dorky kids in there and um but that was that was a big um yeah to experience it in london you know jungle rave music that was like a, a, a big uh, enjoyment for me and then i went to um, uh, a small club i think it was called the velvet lounge um and dimit Dimitri, not from Paris, but Super DJ Dimitri from Delight was playing there. Uh, uh, Velvet Rooms on Charing Cross Road, yes. maybe. Yeah, yeah, and right. and a and a weird place, Leisure Leisure Lounge. That was a bigger room, right? Yeah, that was in, in Holborn. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it was was it called the Leisure Lounge? I can't remember, but I know so where you mean. It was it, much bigger. Yeah, and we just went there randomly because we we I, I looked up in Time Out magazine, and like I said, for my classmates money was an issue so and the entrance fee was kind of okay and i remember we were in a long queue to get in and and like people before us were like where are you guys from and we we're like oh, germany you don't look german <laughs> and i thought what do you think we would look like turning up in lederhosen you know uh, and i remember i can't remember who was djing there but i remember the music was really bad it was a uh, like house remixes of uh, paul simon uh, uh, and Chevy Chase, you can call me Al, <laughs> things like that. But it was still still fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, what about New York? But, but New York happened way later for me, but I, I, I caught the tail end of it. I think it was the springtime of 2000. 9-11 happened in 2001, right? Yeah. And I was there in springtime, so dance tracks were still open, 8-Ball Records, um what was the other big record uh, shop? Uh, now I, c I can't remember that. Vinyl Mania. Vinyl Mania as well. And then there was a third one. Uh, uh, Rock and Soul. Rock and Soul was also open. I frequented all of them. And then there was another one. They had these big Liqu orange. Liquid Sky. Mm -mm, not Liquid Sky. I went to Satellite Records as well. Right. Okay. Uh, no, not Satellite Records. What was the right across Vinyl Mania? The Sonic Roof. Uh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So and 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 something with Groove, I've another Groove shop. They had these big one dollar orange stickers on the records. Mm. Yeah. So, but yeah, we, we may never know. We may never. I, it will come to me. Uh, like it was um, Tony Humphreys named that shop as well as a as a place where he used to go. So it it had, it's, it's one right. of the traditional shops and um, clubs. I went to uh, Shelter and Body and Soul at 6 Hubert Street. So I saw the, like I said, the tail end of it before it all collapsed. Did it live up to your, to your kind of imaginings? Yes, both of them did. Shelter made me sad, if I'm, if I'm completely honest, because I had the feeling this is like a dying uh, breed of clubbers and, and uh, 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 a thing. I mean, they always... I always pictured it and I think they always took pride in themselves as being the continuation of the garage and, and whatever. And I, I felt like, why am I the, the youngest person in this room? You know, So I, I think there was a, uh, a generational gap happening and body and soul felt more um, happening at the time. You had like these, I think the New York's called them Chelsea gays, you know, that the 
Fire Island, Topless, M Muscle Marys, Muscle Marys, in the UK. yeah, uh, like these really um, uh, looking like uh, statues from Greek restaurants dancing, <laughs> <laughs> uh, mixed with shelter people. I saw them th yeah. the morning before, and uh, random I don't know students, international students. So I, I think it was a, a very um, uh, colorful paradise-like setting, and and shelter was deeper and more sincere, and yeah. But I like I like I like both of them. Yeah. Wh which do you prefer, um, journalism, uh, DJing, or producing? I think DJing because you don't leave traces. Like sometimes I look at the stuff I used to write, and I'm like, oh God, what did I? <laughs> what was going? going on uh, and I don't consider myself a producer at all like uh, yeah I, I made a lot of music and remixes but I usually make this with 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 colleagues and partners in it uh, rarely I make something on my own if it's not an edit or if I like all the stems in a remix so I would never consider myself to be like a musician or, or a producer so every time I approach it it's a continuation of DJing and music journalism led into DJing, so DJing is in the middle. That's what I what I would pick. And I, I remember when I stopped being a journalist, um, uh, like what what made DJing even more uh, satisfying to me was like that I could finally shut up, <laughs> just play music. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> I suppose you you were more well known as being one of the hosts on RBMA. I mean, that was kind of your visibility to start with, wasn't it? Yes. I mean, yeah, do, you, do you miss doing all of that? Because it must have allowed you the chance to travel a bit. And I mean, uh, that I, I also have to credit them for maybe planting the seed or making me addicted, like, because that's when you... I started traveling, like, on like in a pro on a professional level, of course, because of music journalism, you know, was it like, be it the first trip for Groove magazine to go to Cologne and interview DJ Spinner with a boombox and playing music to him, or if it then later on was something like Red Bull Music Academy, where you spent at least six weeks in a city somewhere doing interviews and uh, foraging the local <laughs> record shops. Yeah, so, but... I'm I mean, I miss the people because you did, you, it formed friendships and stuff. But I, I don't miss, and I really enjoy talking to you, but I, I don't miss doing interviews anymore. You have to tell me how did music journalism change now over the, um, <laughs> over the years. I'm interviewing you. Yeah. I'm in charge here. See, see, <laughs> that's uh, that's why um, that's why I never like to be interviewed actually. Because I used to be an inter interview, I always mix up interview and interviewee, and um, I liked to ask the questions. But my my main problem with music journalism was that you sometimes had to put out a bold statement. This is the, I mean, the, especially the British colleagues of mine, they were always great of it, great with it. This is new house, new Brit house, and new disco, and new this and. Yeah, usually made up over yeah. a coffee break. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's yeah you'd like to put stuff in into little um, subgenres. Subgenres. While the Americans always, the American DJs always, you know, it's da it's da dance music. 
up-tempo R&B. Yeah, but you know, you couldn't do that. It's not no, it's all dance music to me, which is the other extreme, you know, that you just... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, do, you, do you think the DJ is an artist? I am, I am a DJ and I'm definitely not an artist. So I think there are some DJs who are artists, but more because they are artists than they are DJs, if you know what I mean. They are artists in, in, in being producers or musicians. So the, the DJing they do is a continuation of what they do in a studio in a, in a certain way, you know. But the, the classic DJ is playing other people's music or trying to edit and remix other people's music so it can be played to people again. Yeah. So I... I I still think that the DJ task has is like a service. So, but then again, painters used to be in the service of kings and queens and painting stuff for them. So, maybe I'm shooting myself in the leg here with my <laughs> argument. But possibly, yeah. Um, <clears throat> what advice would you give someone, a, a young person who came to you saying, "How do I become a, a DJ?" What would you tell them? I mean, I could tell a young person of how I did it, but that wouldn't work these days anymore. So I would say get a good haircut, nice clothes, <laughs> social media has to be right, get management. Um, yeah, do all of that. That can be a way into it. Or if you're more sincere, just like go out, see as many DJs as you can. That's what I did, you know. And, and if you, I think if you really love the culture, then... You, you will you will just fall into it and i mean now with youtube and the likes you, you don't really have to spend as much time researching everything as we had to so i think that the, the gateways are are open to it which is a good thing which also opened it up to i mean you remember like some record shops how close-minded they were if you weren't in the inner clique you never got a certain record because it, they only had three of it and four of them were hidden under the, <laughs> under the counter and um and i think now it's 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 more democratic than it has ever been because you can download yeah. music that's another big argument for di for for digital f files whatever di di djing digitally because it enables a lot of people who don't have financial or physical access to record shops or also, I suppose one benefit of the internet is it's uh, removed a lot of the gatekeepers. Yeah. So um, anyone can download any bit of music that they want or yes. get access to things in a yeah. way that you you didn't used to be able to. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I was a kid, I used to hitchhike 70 miles to Nottingham to go to a record store. Yeah. Whereas now you can just sit in your bedroom and go on Bandcamp and yes. fill your boots, basically. I think that's also what made it so popular or let it explode in the in the last ten years because it became a global phenomenon now. You know, the summer of love is not uh, not only in 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 the United Kingdom anymore. It's everywhere. There's a summer all the time. Well, on that optimistic note, <laughs> let's end this interview. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. You have been listening, have been to, listening the to the DJ History, History Podcast, Podcast with, Bill with Bill Brewster. Bill Brewster. Bill Brewster. Bill Brewster.